Hi, everybody. Welcome to North Coast Chronicles podcast, Tales from the Great Lakes. I'm your host, Helen Brohl. Please join me every month on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, ASPN, as we share the nature, history, folklore, and charm of the Great Lakes, America's fourth seacoast. Be sure to check out the entire collection of podcasts on ASPN related to our oceans, coasts, and inland seas at coastalnewstoday.com. If you like North Coast Chronicles, please share it with your friends and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode, we go to the heart and partnership of NOAA's Great Lakes Environmental Research Lab, also referred to as GLURAL, and it's in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And taking us on this journey is Miss Deborah Lee, who is the director of GLURAL. Ms. Lee contributes her 37 years of professional experience in water resources and ecosystem research and management at NOAA and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to GLURAL. As director, she conducts integrated scientific research on the Great Lakes and coastal ecosystems. Prior to this position, Deborah served as the Chief of Water Management for the Great Lakes and Ohio River Division of the U.S. Army Corps, which got her into flood control and oversight of Great Lakes regulation. She is a licensed professional engineer, certified professional hydrologist, and board certified by the American Academy of Water Resources Engineers. And most importantly, Debbie has her bachelor's and master's degree in civil engineering from The Ohio State University, OHIO, and postgrad studies at the University of Michigan. Let's go blue. Deborah Lee, thank you so much for joining us on North Coast Chronicles. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me today. And with us, as always, is our trusty engineer and my talented co-producer, Tyler Buckingham. Hey, Tyler, what's going on? Well, Helen, it's great to be here. How are you doing? I'm really good. I'm really good. I um, have a quick Middle Bass Island story. So for our listeners, who, if you know, I'm from an island in Lake Erie called Middle Bass Island, and they're in the western basin of Lake Erie. However, my husband, Jersey Bob, and I were visiting the island in the first part of July and, of course, joined the annual music festival that supports the Lake Erie Island Conservancy. And I took a bit of time to hand out postcards that I made that uh, had a North Coast Chronicle QR code on it. And Tyler, I'm so happy to learn that many of the people I talked to, and they weren't just from the islands, um, they knew about the podcast and were familiar and referenced even some of our past episodes. And how cool is that? That is so freaking cool. And I am like so proud of you. You've done such a good job on this show, Helen. Oh, oh gosh, thank you. Well, I've, I've talked about how we couldn't do it without you and without Peter, your partner at ASPN. Um, but hey, man, you know, I noted last month that the May episode was our 24th podcast celebrating two years with ASPN. And um, so very proud of that. And thank you. But it is fun to talk to people you've never seen before and hand a card out and say, hey, you know, this is a really great podcast on the Great Lakes and lots of stuff about the area, but all over the lakes. And I couldn't believe how many people said, oh, yeah, I know about it. It's really great. Thank you. You know, we really like this or that. Um, that was so exciting. Um, now, last month, um, I, I we talked about our being um, a podcast for two years. And in honor of that, we asked our listeners to answer three questions about the Great Lakes. And if you emailed correct answers to us at northcoastchronicles at gmail.com, you would receive a North Coast Chronicles tote bag. Now we can announce the winners, but first, here are the questions. One, what Great Lake rarely freezes? No, I am not going to put our guest, uh, even though she's a hydrologist, I am not going to put her on the spot with this one. Tyler, do you remember what the answer was? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Debbie probably knows that the answer is Lake Ontario. And we all know that, you know, other parts of the Great Lakes don't freeze much. We get that. But it rarely freezes Lake Ontario. And we learned that on one of our many podcasts. The second question, um, and Tyler, I know you know this. What famous poet co-wrote the Great Lakes song? Shel Silverstein. Yay! Ding, 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 ding. It's Shel Silverstein, and he wrote it with Pat Daly, who is a well-known Great Lakes troubadour. A great song, and I think it's pretty cool that um, this wonderful published uh, uh, poet uh, was a co-writer. Now, third question. How many NOAA marine sanctuaries are there in the Great Lakes, and where are they located? Now, we learned on one of our recent podcasts that there are other 
NOAA marine sanctuaries in the pipeline for the Great Lakes. But what are the two currently designated marine sanctuaries in the Great Lakes? Debbie, do you want to take a crack at it? Well, that would be our one located in Alpena, Michigan, the Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary. And then our most recent one, uh, which is the Wisconsin Shipwreck Sanctuary, which is on the western shore of Lake Michigan. Yay. Thank you. I knew you'd know it. So yes, the Wisconsin Shipwreck Coast National Shipwreck Coast National Marine Sanctuary on Lake Michigan in the state of Wisconsin and the Thunder Bay Marine Sanctuary in the state of Michigan, but on Lake Huron. So thank you. Yes. Thank you. Tyler, did you get them all? You know, I I always get caught up in the National Marine Sanctuary one. I, I, I forget Thunder Bay. I know. I know it's a bay. I want to call it something. And then I also confuse it with uh, the Indiana Dunes uh, National Park, but thank you, Debbie, for stepping in. You really you, you saved my you saved my embarrassment on that. You're welcome. So, um, so our three winners are I will announce them are Laura in Newport, New York, Patrick in Seattle, Washington, and Linda in Clifton, New Jersey, and they have each received a North Coast Chronicles tote bag, which I think we can say are now collectibles. So, thank you everybody for joining in and, and sending in your answers. Uh, we really appreciate it. We'll do. You know, kind of fun to do uh, perhaps some quizzes in the future because there's just so many things to learn about the Great Lakes and to even remember. So thank you for that. Before you move on. Yes, sir. I need to talk up the tote bags and the mugs and the whole <laughs> okay. the whole shebang because really, it, it I feel just such, such a cool sense of pride uh, seeing this tote bag, seeing the North Coast Chronicles tile, which is a beautiful uh, graphic tile that accompanies your show every month when it comes out, but it looks so good on the tote bag. I think it would be, I've actually been taking my tote bag to the farmer's market where I utilize it as my grocery bag and I'm proud to show it off. So you did a great job with that. I just have to say it turned out wonderful. Well, uh, uh, okay. In fairness, I did not do that logo. You guys did it, but it is a great one, and the colors are great, and uh, it shows well. So, um, thank. You. Even though it's kind of New York Mets colors, we'll have to just push that aside. Um, I think uh, it, it it really appreciate all of that. But thank you. I'm glad you could have one, and you deserve it just for being such um, a great partner on the show. Now, I, our June episode, um, we talked about the lake sturgeon one of the most ancient species of fish in the Great Lakes, and before European settlement was one of the most abundant. But by the early 1900s, the Great Lakes sturgeon population was decimated by overfishing. Dr. Matt Cross, who's the director of vertebrate conservation for the Toledo Zoo and manages a cooperative sturgeon hatching and release program, as well as Ms. Mary Paulson with Sturgeon for Tomorrow in North Michigan joined us. Now, there was so much talk to talk about on that podcast entirely that we just ran out of time. Now, there's one question I did not have time to ask, um, and it, but it's about the supposed phenomenon that a sturgeon will hold themselves out of the water with their tails, kind of like a porpoise does, you know, like Flipper would go in the water and then, you know, be out of the water with their tails and go backwards. I, I wanted to ask our guests if they ever experienced that. That just seemed too like left field for me. But Tyler, what did you learn? I really enjoyed the discussion with Mary Paulson about with Sturgeon for Tomorrow about their uh, monitoring programs in some of these sturgeon spawning areas where they just kind of camp out and just, you know, by way, by just being there, by being present, they are able to support these fish and, and, and discourage any sort of poaching activity that might be going on. And I just think that is such a brilliant idea for kind of environmental activism generally, just like laying eyes on the space and protecting the space simply by presence. I just thought that was so wonderful. Simple, right? Just like immensely simple that to learn that poachers would go in um, and they would they would they would capture these sturgeon that were spawning. They would literally cut them open and dump eggs in a in their pickup truck i'm sure it wasn't just in the truck in something but they could fill up an entire pickup truck with surgeon eggs and then of course then they throw the fish away crazy uh and there was uh in their area anyway up north there was a decline in in sturgeon so how simple like you said 
just have a presence along those areas that are being uh, where the spawning is and do not confront, do not engage. Um, but just that presence made a huge difference. So that that was pretty cool. I have to agree. Now, I hope our listeners will go back and check out the June episode of North Coast Chronicles or at least visit the Toledo Zoo Sturgeon Touch Tank if you want to feel that ancient and bony body of a lake sturgeon because I think it's just, they, it's like feeling something prehistoric. Or get in touch with Sturgeon for Tomorrow or other sturgeon protection programs to volunteer to be a presence along the areas where sturgeon are spawning in the Great Lakes to prevent poaching. Thank you. The NOAA Great Lakes Environmental Research Laboratory is one of seven federal research labs in the Oceanic and Atmospheric Research Line, Office of NOAA, and everybody knows NOAA is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. It was established in 1974 to provide a focus for NOAA's environmental and ecosystem research in the Great Lakes and coastal marine environments. One of its earliest issues was harmful algal blooms, a subject we've talked about on North Coast Chronicles, and algal blooms remain as a topic under Glural's interest area today. As noted at the start of the podcast, joining us is Ms. Deborah Lee, Debbie, who is the director of Glural. Welcome, Debbie. You have a very interesting job, not the least of which is because you are also serving as NOAA's regional team lead for the Great Lakes, facilitating collaboration across a network of more than 800 NOAA employees and partners. So could you tell us um, how Glural operates as a research lab and how those partnerships play into it? Okay, I'm very happy to do that. Uh, first, let me say, you know, it's very much a privilege, I think, to be the director of NOAA's Great Lakes Environmental Research Laboratory. Um, many people don't know it, but we are NOAA's only freshwater research laboratory. So that puts us in a bit of a special category amongst our uh, sibling laboratories. Uh, but NOAA's very much all about partnerships. Uh, we have about 50 federal employees that form our core uh, scientific mission, but we're partnered with the Cooperative Institute for Great Lakes Research. And that is a consortium of partners of 10 academic institutions uh, with the University of Michigan as the lead. And they provide about the other half of our workforce uh, through university employees. So what's unique about that consortium is it consists of academic institutions that gives us a reach all the way to Western uh, Lake Superior and then all the way east to uh, the Eastern Lake Ontario through those 10 academic institutions. So it gives us ability uh, to force multiply our work uh, where we have just a single laboratory located in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It, how is Glural funded? Is Glural kind of like the, 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 fund, the central funding source for all of this partnership work? Um, yes. So we have what's called base funding, which is comes through our NOAA appropriations annually. And that comprises about right now about 50% of our funding. But then we also work uh, with other agencies such as EPA with the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative that provides funding to us through interagency agreements. We also work with um, no other NOAA line offices and programs like the National Ocean Service or our Climate Program Office that provides funding to us that we can then uh, share with our partners. And uh, we also, um, the latest and the most newest partnership we have is with the U.S. Coast Guard. Under the Vessel Incidental Discharge Act of 2018, uh, Senator Peters was very successful in establishing the new National Center of Expertise for Freshwater Oil Spill Response and Research. And through that, um, it was uh, we were able to place half of that Coast Guard Center at, at Glural. So we have uh, four Coast Guard employees that now sit in the laboratory. And there are uh, four that are at Lake Superior State University in Sault Ste. Marie. And so we were able to successfully add Lake Superior State University to our Cooperative Institute. And now we're able to take Coast Guard funding, receive that funding, uh, use it at Glural and also at Lake Superior State University.
and Senator Peters is a is uh, from Michigan, correct? He's a senator from Michigan. So yes. Um, well, it, it's certainly uh, glad that he has his eyes on you guys. Does um, I didn't know about that. Um, you know, program. I think that's fantastic. Um, it's in the uh, the Coast Guard <laughs> Congress throws Coast Guard all kinds of oversight duties. Um, you know, the minute something, a pollution pollutant hits the water, it's a Coast Guard issue, but there's all kinds of things that are related to ship operations. And, you know, there's not, you know, a Coast Guard has a whole lot on their hands, not just, you know, a search and rescue. Um, and so the ability to, um, to do all of that, I can see where that partnership makes a huge difference. That so was really smart um, to work with you folks and work with the scientists directly. And, and maybe we can ask a little bit more about that um, later on. Um, do you guys have field stations or satellite stations? You're not just, um, other than what you just mentioned, you're not just based in Ann Arbor, or are you? Or is it only through your partnerships? Um, no, we have a field station that's located in Muskegon, Michigan. Um, many people recognize it because we have three buildings there, but the most recognizable building is a 1905 historic life-saving station. And when you enter the harbor, uh, that's the first thing people see. So it's very iconic and uh, is very, really emblematic of our mission, I think. Those kind of stations are just so great. And I keep trying, we've talked about the Great Lakes Circle Tour. We've talked about lighthouses. Um, there's just so many great things to say, see, and I can imagine. That's terrific if you've got that station. Um, can you, I, I, I'm going to go, there's so many things to talk about because of so many issues. If you don't mind, um, I, I'd like to jump right into um, um, the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative because it's a big deal and a lot of funding has gone to it recently. Um, and as you said, you also work with EPA, but it's not just EPA, isn't it managed by even out of fish and wildlife or some other agencies? Can you kind of give me a sense, a, a perspective on it? It's breadth and scope, uh, even as it just relates, because it is, it is multi-agency and multi-organization. It is. And that's really what its greatest strength is and why the program has been so successful. So there are 16 federal agencies in all that are working to execute and achieve the goals of the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative. Now, EPA's Great Lakes National Program Office is the manager, and so they oversee the entire program. However, we have a board that's called the Regional Working Group, where we have executives from each of the federal agencies making up that board. And so when we go through the process of deciding priorities, what projects will be worked on and funded, that's all done through that collective consensus of that regional working group. But it's just not the federal agencies as well. Uh, we listen very closely to the state's priorities and to tribal priorities. And we ensure that the projects that we're doing address their priorities and their concerns. So that's one of the reasons it has been so successful. Um, you know, it has been in place since 2010. And there has been uh, almost $5 billion now since 2010 allocated to that program. And NOAA is actually one of the top five agencies in actually executing that money. And we have executed, or in other words, done projects of, of over $330 million to date. So out of five billion three hundred and thirty, I, I I'd go back in there and renegotiate. I think you're not getting your share. <laughs> oh, believe me, we we are we are working hard. We are at capacity. In fact, we're one of the very few agencies that receives funding in all five focus areas. Yeah. Well, so EPA, my friends in EPA, please don't come back at me and 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 get at me. I'm just trying to make a joke, but um, I, I appreciate um what you're saying. So I'm just trying to give our listeners a perspective on the, the, you know, the years, mine, and ours of funding um, for Great Lakes Research and where it comes from. Uh, and could you remind us of those five, do you know them off the top of your head, the five um, areas of concern under the Restoration Initiative? Yeah, so they're called focus areas. There is, um, each five years, we develop an action plan, and that action plan has five focus areas. 
So the first one, it focuses on toxic substances and areas of concern. And so we're looking at how to remediate those areas that have uh, been polluted uh, in the past, uh, primarily due to industrialization. Uh, the second focus area is on invasive species and how to uh, address the harm that they've done and to understand their impact and ongoing impact and actually and also to prevent future invasive species from coming into the Great Lakes. And then we have focus area three, which is non-point source pollution impacts on nearshore health. And this one is what is most closely associated with harmful algal blooms and uh, working to reduce the nutrients that are entering the lakes that are contributing to the harmful algal bloom pro uh, problem. Uh, the fourth focused area is habitat and species, and that's where we're actually looking to restore habitat, uh, preserve species, prevent their decline um, throughout the Great Lakes. And then the last is focus area five, which is foundations for future restoration actions. And that's kind of a fancy name for uh, education, public education, and then also fundamental science that supports the restoration effort. So um, the uh, let me go to that one first, the Foundations for Future Restoration Initiatives. Is that going to, is that education and informing at school groups and building a foundation for better understanding moving forward? Could you clarify a little bit? Yeah, there's a couple programs under that. Uh, one is through our National Ocean Services uh, Bay Watershed and Education Program, or we call it the Be Wet Program. And that one uh, teaches the teachers uh, it helps the teachers uh, learn about the Great Lakes, develop uh, environmental field programs for their students, so then they can take the students out and learn more about the Great Lakes. Oh, that's terrific. Yeah, so NOAA kind of does that in other areas of the country as well, right? Yes, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. So so you've got a dedicated staff at GLURL that is helping to do that education um, and outreach? So actually... Um, Helen, Ellen Brody, who's our regional uh, sanctuary manager, is the one who's the champion of that program. Ah, yes. terrific. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, she's terrific. Um, and using the marine sanctuaries and other, there's great ways to get the word out. I'm so excited about the work that they do. And I keep encouraging people, go to the Great Lakes. There's so much to see and do and learn, not just see, right? There's so much to learn. Um, could we jump into invasives? Because um, uh, as I mentioned before, I have not uh, talked about invasives yet in the um, on our podcast. And um, I, I dealt with invasive species issues for many, many years, both when I was in the Great Lakes working with ship operators, um, international vessel ship operators. Uh, and then um, it just, it, it, it's, it hasn't petered out. I'm not implying that it isn't an issue. I know that it's an issue, um, but it, it has evolved. Um, and um, so I, I'm, they, in other words, we know they haven't gone away. Zebra mussels and sea lamprey are still out there. But what can you share about the state of those species, um, which have been in the lakes for a while, and then the rate of new introductions? Um, and then you also talked about really um, um, preserving current habitat from, from those invasives that are already in. If you could kind of let us in on where things are and how it's viewed generally these days. Well, at GLURL, we have a special emphasis on understanding the impact of the Dreisenid mussels on the Great Lakes. We have a program where we annually monitor the impacts that they're having. Uh, we look at their biomass. Uh, we look at their growth rates. We look at their impact of water filtering uh, on the Great Lakes uh, water quality. So that's a strong area of emphasis for us. Um, the other emphasis that we have is modeling the impact of invasive carp if they were to get into the Great Lakes. So we actively look at how that would potentially change the fisheries, the food web, and we share that information with the Invasive Carp Regional Coordinating Committee. Yeah, I, I'm guessing that your work with the Army Corps of Engineers came in handy on, on uh, you know, the possible Asian carp introduction. Yes, yes. In fact, uh, one of our studies helped form the uh, economic analysis that uh, was provided the justification for the chief's report for the Brandon Road Lock and Dam. So 
very important piece of work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so loaded question, are you seeing, what's the word on uh, Asian carp these days? Is it still um, those electric fences keeping them out? Well, yes, we've been very successful so far. And, and I would say that uh, those electric fences are operated by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. They're not operated by NOAA, uh, but they have proven to be effective, as well as other measures that are taken, uh, such as uh, removing fish, uh, invasive carp from the Illinois River, uh, constant monitoring, rapid response um, if there's a detection. So we have been very effective so far, and we want to keep being effective. Yeah, thank you. Um, just hit me, is there any other source of possible Asian carp invasion um, into the Great Lakes other than the Illinois River source? Um, yes, actually, there have been many um, what we call hydrologic connections, places between the Great Lakes watershed and the Ohio and Mississippi River watersheds, where there could be potential for the fish or their eggs uh, crossing into the Great Lakes during periods of floods, high water. And so we the Army Corps and also through GLRI, we've been working to make sure those connections don't happen, uh, either through barriers or other measures. Uh, but, you know, one of the things we're always most concerned about is human transportation of, of uh, invasive carp, either on purpose uh, due to uh, cultural reasons or through accidents, through bait buckets, uh, things of that nature. So we're very much aware of that. We really want to continue to educate people in the Great Lakes so that they don't end up being one of those pathways. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. It goes both ways, right? Folks out there who are fisher, uh, fisher people or you're moving a boat from one place to another. Um, and it's not just about a zebra mussel, excuse me, a, a an Asian carp that's big, right? These big, huge carp, that's not when you, you can see those. It's it's uh, the little little critters that are in a bucket you might not see. So um, I really appreciate a lot of the state programs that work very hard uh, to remind people to clean off your boats and clean out your buckets and make sure you don't transmit from one location to another location. So zebra mussel, has it uh, leveled off? Uh, yes. Yes. It's been outcompeted by the quagga mussel, which is a larger mussel. It, those mussels can survive in deeper water and colder water. So they have pretty much outcompeted the zebra mussels, although you'll still find zebra mussels in many inland lakes. Wow. I also read that, um, uh, during COVID, I mean, sea lampreys were uh, were addressed, and there was a growth of them at the opening of the seaway. But um, the sea lamprey, there's a lamprey aside. I'm not saying that correctly. Um, that helps to get rid of them. And I understand under COVID because it was hard for people to get out and about that there had been an increase in sea lamprey. Do you have a sense of where that is? Um, as no one working on any of that, or have you heard just from your extensive experience? Um, I have heard that. That there was a rebound or an increase in the lamprey population, uh, but NOAA doesn't work particularly on the sea lampreys uh, directly. That's our our colleagues and friends at the Great Lakes Fishery Commission, and so I give a big shout out to them for the programs that they put out in cooperation with the states um, that address that particular invasive. So. Um do you feel that, um, and I know this is loaded, and I don't mean it sound loaded, because, but I, I welcome your perspective on ballast water exchange um, with vessels coming to the lakes. It has been very successful in reducing or eliminating um, some introductions. Um, obviously, there's no reason to give that up, but is it your general feeling that that has been sufficient, pretty good? And um, is there any other research you guys are doing um, on ballast water treatment technologies? So we're not working directly on ballast water uh, treatment technologies, but we do have noted that there have been no additional introductions uh, through ballast water um, from the ocean coming vessels, the vessels coming into the Great Lakes. One of the topics of concern now is interlake transfer of uh, invasives through ballast water. So that's something that is being looked at um, through 
the Vessel Incidental Discharge Act uh, in collaboration with the U.S. Coast Guard. So uh, MARAD, if you're familiar with MARAD, uh, they've received some funding through EPA as well as through Coast Guard to continue to address that issue. Thank you so much. We'll, we'll follow up with Merritt on that. Um, so looking at some of the other, you said that uh, GLURAL was funded in all of those five issue areas under the Great Lakes Restoration Program, which is terrific. Um, it's a testament to how much people respect um, the the lab. Um, the harmful algal blooms. We had um, pretty incredible discussion in one of our podcasts about harmful algal blooms. And the types of algal blooms and how many types there are and, and certainly the impacts um, of them in Lake Erie in particular because of introductions of, you know, um, agricultural related um, nutrient introductions. So generally, what is NOAA, how are they engaged in the, in the, in the algal bloom uh, or non-point um, pollution issue? Because I think you said non-point for you is primarily um, uh, how you're dealing with nearshore health of algal blooms, I think. Is that correct? Yeah, we're, we're very highly engaged in that focus area three. Uh, in fact, we receive very substantial funding uh, for which we're very appreciative uh, through GLRI to address that issue. Uh, we're doing work on Lake Erie, uh, in Saginaw Bay and Lake Huron, in Green Bay, on Lake Michigan, and some work in Lake Superior as well. Uh, we do everything from very fundamental work at the genomic level looking at the species and what prompts them to produce toxins um, because they don't always produce the toxins. There are things that uh, flip their switch on to do that. And we're trying to gain an understanding about that. Um, and so we do everything from that fundamental research and then we translate that fundamental research into predictive models. And that's what makes GLURAL and NOAA so unique is that we just don't publish the science we translate that into models and tools that can be used by managers. So we are the developers of the harmful algal bloom tracker, and that can forecast the movement of the harmful algal blooms in Western Lake Erie out to five days. And uh, we've done every, we've also, we've been able to take that from a two-dimensional model that's built upon our Great Lakes coastal forecast system, which is the model that models temperature, waves, and currents, uh, to be able to take that to a three-dimensional model where we can actually even be able to look at how the harmful algal blooms can get mixed within the depths of the water. And why that's so important is because water intakes are at lower levels in the lake. And so you wanna be able to say not only where that harmful algal bloom is moving on the surface, but where is it also getting entrained deeper into the water where there's potential for it being take, taken into a water intake. Uh, yeah, we look to NOAA's um, predictions every year about harmful algal blooms, um, particularly I'm from Lake Erie. So naturally, um, you're just always watching it. And let me just say that our experience um, the first two weeks of July in Lake Erie were just extraordinary and amazing and so grateful um, that we were there at a time where there wasn't uh, wasn't something we had to think about. But um, I just want to thank Noah, and I'm sure a lot of it goes to you and the predictions that you guys put together every year for harmful algal blooms. It impacts so much um, of um, certainly those states and provinces um, around our lakes. So thank you for that. Could you talk a little bit about the monitoring system itself? Um, are, are you, do you, uh, I said, it, it's obviously more than just a, a physical eyes on the water monitoring. I'm guessing that you're using some kind of um, a monitoring systems for physical um, uh, modeling of some sort. Could you explain that a little bit, how that works? Yes, we actually bring all of our technology to bear on being able to observe and measure the harmful algal blooms. So everything from satellite observations, which help us see where the extent is to initialize our models and also help us calculate bio, uh, the mass of it, of the harmful algal blooms. Um, and when there are clouds and the satellites can't see through uh, to the lake, we do hyperspectral flyovers in an airplane uh, to help us get an understanding of where that uh, harmful algal bloom is moving. And then on the lakes itself, in the lake itself, we have quite a number of technologies. 
Uh, one of our most innovative is an environmental sample processor. We have three of those funded by GLRI. And they are actually called labs in a can. And what makes them unique is that they sit at, on the bottom of the lake. They can then take water samples at different levels on the lake and bring that into the can and then actually do the analysis on it to determine if the toxins are present. And then it can, tele, can telecommunicate that back to us at the laboratory. So that's a unique observing system. Uh, we're still also doing traditional observing with our vessels on the water where we go out and actually take samples. Uh, we do that real time to support the harmful algal bloom bulletin that's produced by our National Center of Coastal Ocean Science. Uh, so we do that. And of course, that takes a little bit more time, right? Because you have to take the samples back to the laboratory and analyze those. So we're also working with uh, autonomous underwater vehicles, and we have a partnership with the Monterey Bay Research Aquarium Institute, where we've actually taken that environmental sample processor that's in a, a large can, we've miniaturized it, and we've put it on one of these autonomous underwater vehicles. And then that vehicle can actually follow the bloom where it moves to watch uh, or sample for those toxins, whereas the uh, labs in a can, the ES ESPs, uh, sit in the bottom of the lake and can't move, right? They stay in stationary positions. So we also have buoys uh, in the lake. Uh, we have about eight stations, uh, depending on the year where we actually have um, monitoring buoys that can also take uh, water quality samples and provide that data back to us. So we bring a lot of strengths to the table. Uh, yeah, you got a lot of good toys. Mm -hmm. That sounds so much fun. As, as an engineer, you must love just the technologies and, and everything you're doing to get a really super um, uh, sample of everything going on. That's just so interesting. Um, you have a, you have a, tell us about, you have a research vessel out there. You've got um, um, obviously a lot of boats. Um, where, how do you, do you have a lot of, are you, are they maintained and have oversight basically out of Glural as well? Yeah. So we have about 16 research vessels and they range in size from our 80 foot Laurentian, which is our largest uh, ship. Uh, down to uh, 50 to 55 foot vessels, 30 foot vessels, all the way down to about 20 feet, 20 foot vessels. And the reason we have so many varied vessels is they're suited for different purposes. So the Laurentian is our expedition ship. It's capable of going out on multi-day cruises and holding up to 14 people. In fact, it was just out on Lake Erie this week uh, for a 12-day cruise where we did 24 observations to really better understand uh, the short-term high-intensity weather event impacts on, cyan on the harmful algal blooms in Western uh, Lake Erie. So that's an example of how we use that ship. Um, our 50 and 55 foot ships are our workhorses. They uh, put out our buoys. Uh, they help support the National Marine Sanctuaries. They do hydrographic surveying. They also do uh, nearshore sampling where the uh, larger ship can't go because of draft. And uh, the ships also support our academic partners. So we have academic members who come on who may be doing uh, research related but distinct from us and they can come on and we call it piggybacking and they can take their samples at the same time we're doing our work and our samples. Yeah that, that's fantastic and I think it has to be done. When I was on the Healy, uh, gosh it's 2019 already, there were a lot of other organizations, a lot of universities doing uh, their research work and certainly uh, U.S. Navy and others doing um, some other research. Piggybacking is absolutely essential. It's, uh, it makes no sense for everybody to have their own ship. So, but that's fantastic and pretty exciting. So um, the, the toxic substances in areas of concern, could you talk a little bit about that work? Uh, yes, I'm happy to. So that work for, that NOAA is doing is being done through our National Centers for Coastal Ocean Science, and they're located within the line office that's called the National Ocean Service. 
And so they run what's called the Muscle Watch program, where they actually take mussels in cages, set them out in the lakes. The mussels are great uh, filterers of the water. Uh, they bioaccumulate um, toxic substances, and then they're retrieved from the water and taken back and analyzed. And it helps us understand where we either have emerging issues or legacy issues with toxic pollutants. Gloral's role in that is providing the vessel support. And we also use the uh, Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary's dive capabilities. So it's a great example of how we bring all of NOAA's strengths together to be able to perform our mission. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, climate change just weaves its way through all of these areas, right? Um, you talked about uh, zebra mussels. Or so in the zebra mussels uh, don't grow or don't live in Lake Superior because they can't handle the cold water. Um, but certainly there's an impact on changing climate, water, uh, warming of the waters or changing of the waters, the, the times that water turns over. Um, generally speaking, how is Gloral involved in climate change? And I know it's a, both a, a specific and a very broad question. Yeah, so I, I would say we're involved in all aspects of it. Uh, we look, we're looking at the hydrology and how the hydrology is changing. Uh, we know that due to the warming climate, we get more intense precipitation, which increases more nutrient runoff to the lakes. So we look at that aspect. We know ice cover is declining, which has an impact on lake temperatures. Uh, we were recently funded under the bipartisan infrastructure law to put more thermistor strings out in the lakes. So this measures the temperature at different water levels in the lake. And the reason we're doing that is that we've discovered that the deep waters of the Great Lakes are warming. Uh, in the past, they've been more at a steady state temperature but now we're starting to see that their temperatures are increasing. They're storing heat. So that's one area, another area that we're looking at it. Another area that's newer is actually lake acidification. Uh, many people have heard about the acidification of the oceans uh, due to increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Well, it's also potentially happening in the lakes, but nobody has been monitoring this or looking at it. We've recently been funded by NOAA's Ocean Acidification Program to develop a program to start to look at that impact of how acidification could change the uh, pH in the Great Lakes and how that could impact um, the biogeochemical properties, the food web, um, and carbonate saturation states uh, in the Great Lakes. Geez, ocean acidification. Remember, we always just talk about acid rain. I recall, though, that in that uh, the bedrock of the Great Lakes is very limestone-ish, and that uh, may not be just across the the border in the lakes, and that that could offset um, the acidification. But if there isn't really good monitoring, um, then how do you know? Exactly, exactly. And so that's why we're uh, starting this program. Well, that's. Terrific. Um, talk about your Canadian partnerships. Um, we share the Great Lakes with our great partners from the north. Um, how do you engage um, broadly and specifically with your Canadian partners? Well, broadly, we do that under the umbrella of the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement. Um, that's an agreement between the two countries to address specific objectives in uh, water quality for the Great Lakes. Uh, you may be familiar with it, it's comprised of what are called 10 annexes, where each annex is a goal or an objective. And NOAA is very much involved in many of those annexes. We actually co-chair the climate annex, which is Annex 9. We're also very much involved in Annex 10, which is the science annex, Annex 4, the nutrient annex, uh, Annex 2, lakewide management plans, Annex 3, chemicals of mutual concern, um, and even Annex 6, Annex 6, which focuses on the aquatic invasive species. And so in my role as a regional executive for NOAA in the Great Lakes, I sit on the Great Lakes Executive Committee, which is the governing body uh, for the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement. And then my scientists uh, sit on many of the subcommittees and the annexes to bring GLURALS and no all of NOAA's science actually to the table in addressing that, um, 
the goals and objectives of the Water Quality Agreement. But we also work directly with scientists one-on-one, our Canadian colleagues and many other forums as well. There's the uh, Coordinating Committee on Great Lakes Basic Hydraulic and Hydrologic Data, uh, where that committee develops the fundamental data sets uh, that are needed in order to manage the Great Lakes water quantity. So they work on setting the um, geodetic datum for the Great Lakes, the International Great Lakes Datum. They set out the official uh, historical records on flows and the connecting channels and water levels of the Great Lakes. And they use that forum to continue to monitor the, the physical changes that are going on in the, in the lake's hydraulics and hydrology. Uh, many of us in our careers form uh, close friendships and uh, professional relationships with our Canadian colleagues because we all have a sense of stewardship of and shared goals for the Great Lakes. And we have successfully managed and shared those waters for more than 100 years uh, through the International Joint Commission Boundary Waters Treaty and then later the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement. Is there a Canadian version of NOAA's Great Lakes Environmental Research Lab? Um, Yeah, CCIW, the Canada Centre for Inland Waters in uh, Burlington uh, on Lake Ontario. So yes, it's it's similar uh, to ours, and they also have many uh, academic institutions as well that are very much involved in Great Lakes research. And this probably is such a a silly question, but is there a Canadian version of a Great Lakes Restoration Initiative? There is, and I believe it's just most recently been established, so I can't speak to it with great authority. Um, But you may be aware that um, Canada has been looking at establishing a new water agency. And through that, they're looking at developing a a comparable program with, with uh, somewhat similar levels of funding. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, and I know it, it. I have to ask a Canadian question um, because um, um, obviously it's a partnership. But we talk so much about the U.S. side. I just don't want to neglect uh, for our many listeners on the Canadian side. You know, just what's going on, and want to acknowledge um, that the cooperation and collaboration regarding Great Lakes restoration and research is is amazing. So thank you for that. Now, you're a hydrographer, cannot go without asking about water levels in the Great Lakes. Are we up? Are we down? Is it in? Are we out? Um, how, do we, how do we begin to manage the, the modeling or understanding of that? Because it is so climate dependent, I would think. Yeah, I'm glad you've really brought that up because it's going to give me the chance to talk about a new research program we have funded by the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law where we've received uh, nearly $5 million for the next five years uh, to be studying the seasonal to annual uh, forecasting and drivers of Great Lakes water levels. So why this is so new is that today we're still using technology, statistical relationships that were first developed in the 1950s. And then in the 1980s, uh, Gloral first developed some of the very first comprehensive watershed, lake evaporation, and heat models of the Great Lakes. But there hasn't been a lot of substantial U.S. investment since those 80s. And it's time for us to go to the next generation of forecast models that's going to bring all of NOAA's scientific forecasting capability, including our meteorological forecasting, our global forecasting, our new and emerging understanding of how these uh, global circulation patterns and ocean heat actually even affects the mid-continent and drives Great Lakes water levels, and also look at short-term forecasting like ice formation and lake evaporation. So we're hugely excited about this. Uh, We're working hard with our Cooperative Institute. We're bringing in a lot of new researchers, a lot of um, early career folks to work on this issue that know how to work with artificial intelligence and machine learning, um, as well as having some of the, uh, we'll say, elder statesmen like myself, um, who can bring a lot of the historical knowledge and institutional knowledge into this process. And we're working closely with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers uh, 
um, who have uh, on the U.S. side the operational res uh, responsibility for Lake Superior and Lake Ontario regulation. And then under the International Joint Commission, we're working very closely with the Great Lakes Adaptive Management um, Committee. And that allows us to work closely with our Canadian partners on this new initiative. Well, I, I'm, I hate to self-brag, but I'm going to just say that I, I am really proud of the work that um, I did number of years ago now to to help develop the Great Lakes Water Level Observation Network, and I don't know what condition those monitor those uh, you know um, monitors are in at this point, but I hope they're in good shape, and I hope you're continuing to get the funding you need uh, um, to help and add on to them. It's in some respects like a ports program for the Great Lakes, but um, um, but in any case, I I thank you for that. So where are levels right now? Are they up? Are they down? Well, as you know, we hit record, new record highs uh, between 2019 and 2021, depending on the particular lake. Um, and the lakes have been coming back down from those record highs, but uh, they're still above average. They are. Okay. Well, and then there's, there's all kinds of coastal erosion issues um, related to that. And um, what is the biggest issue um, or problem from your perspective, just from your perspective, as it relates to um, unusual high water or unusual low water? I think the real challenge is educating uh, the coastal residents on expectations. Uh, because we're going to continue to see under a changing climate, uh, more fluctuations, more extremes, more rapid fluctuations. You know, we rebounded from record lows to record highs in a two-year period. So we really need to educate people so that they know um, and have that expectation built in so that they, uh, if they brought, they're buying a home on the coast, they understand the risks involved with that um, and what resources they may have to address fluctuating uh, lake levels. And we also need people to understand that these lakes are massive. They're huge. They're not like a small reservoir or a small lake where we might be able to control the water levels. Only Lake Superior and Lake Ontario are regulated, and I say partially regulated because we still cannot fully um, compress their water levels, and we don't want to do that either because it has big environmental and ecosystem impacts. Um, so people have to understand that there are those fluctuations and that there's limits to the lake regulation. Uh, lake Ontario can only be, has an outlet of a certain capacity through the St. Lawrence River. And in the recent high water levels, uh, we had so much water uh, coming from the upper lakes and coming down into Lake Ontario and from its own watershed. And then we had a lot of water on the Ottawa River system, which takes water down into Montreal on the St. Lawrence River, that we were beyond the ability to move water out of the lake, at least to move it out quickly or move enough out of the lake to prevent flooding. And people don't understand that. And that once that water is in the lake, it takes time to move it out. So it's not like a river flood where the water may go up and go down within a week's time. You know, it takes, you know, a season or maybe even longer to move that water off the lake. Yeah, thank you. That's a really good um, response. I really appreciate that point. I, um, the, the misunderstanding that uh, coastal landowners have that it's like a tub you just pull the plug right um, and being angry at some organization or agency and saying well they're not letting they just have to let the water out um, as if that's you know somehow it's being artificially held high or that it can be uh, raised or lowered simply um, and so thank you for that that's a really great answer I can I can appreciate how challenging that is so as the director of GLURAL um, you know, tell me a little bit about your personal vision for the work, um, how you view the work um, and GLURAL and, you know, I guess where you want to see it in five years or 10 years. Mm -hmm. So my vision for the laboratory is for us to sustain our innovative and cutting edge science to address the lake's most pressing environmental problems. And we've talked about a number of those today, the invasive species, the harmful algal blooms, the changing climate, uh, you know, preventing or responding to freshwater oil spills. 
So there's really a host of challenges. There continue to be emerging challenges. And so I want GLURL to be ready and poised to be able to address those challenges through science. Right now, we're going through a very dramatic change in that we had a large wave of retirements of our most senior staff and um, at the end of the pandemic. I knew when I walked in the doors eight years ago at the laboratory that that was going to be coming. But what happened was the pandemic with the telework, instead of us having people retire sort of gradually over a certain period of time, um, people were able to continue to work through the pandemic. And then when it was time to come back in, um, many of our folks who were retirement eligible said, well, I think it's time you know, for me to go now. And so we had a large number of people in key positions retire that had a lot of institutional and scientific knowledge. And so now we're in the process of bringing in that next generation and hiring uh, the people who are going to tackle our problems, you know, our most pro uh, pressing problems over the next 10 years. So it's really an exciting time. And so I'm very excited for it. I want to make sure that the laboratory is uh, poised with the right um, uh, subject matter expertise to be able to address this, uh, particularly in new areas like, you know, the machine learning and the artificial intelligence, uh, genomics. Um, so we're working hard to do that. And then we're also using this opportunity to increase the diversity of laboratory. Uh, you know, traditionally, it's been a very uh, male-dominated uh, people of European descent. Um, you know, the tr tradition, um, not a very diverse staff. And now we're using the opportunity to bring in, uh, we're almost at a 50-50 balance between the genders, between uh, men and women, and also members of our LGBTQ um, population. We're bringing in people there to strike diversity. So overall, we're looking at creating new diversity that will help us have new ideas and new thinking in the laboratory. Thank you so much. Um, so, uh, you know, Deborah, um, I don't want to stop here without highlighting just incredible resource that GLURL is. And for researchers or people who want to learn more about what we've been talking about today, um, your website is chock full of publications, data, products, um, educational resources. Um, could you just uh, direct our listeners to your site and what they might find? Yeah, so our current website is www.glural.noaa.gov. So that's G-L-E-R-L dot N-O-A-A dot G-O-V. And you can find a lot of information there. But what I would tell your listeners is that we're about to launch an entirely new website. So it's being updated, modernized. It will have more interactive connections to our data and to our products. So um, I encourage people to check it out now, but I'd ask you to come back again in a month or so or two months and check out our new site once it's up in place. Oh, that's exciting. And Tyler, we got to make a note of that too, you know, when it's up to make a note of it um, on one of our podcasts. So I don't think you need to be a, a, a strict researcher to find this information fascinating. Uh, there's publications on bathymetry in the Great Lakes. There's publications on, on um, you know, invasive species, water levels, um, the research. There's just so much going on. Um, and uh, so, uh, yeah, so folks, take advantage of these great resources. Um, again, whether you're a researcher or just have an interest in it. Um, I can't thank you enough um, for joining us. Um, Deborah Lee, is there anything that you would like to share with us before we close our episode? Uh, yes. Uh, next year is a very special year for us, 2024. On April 25th, Glorel will be 50 years old and we'll be planning celebrations throughout next year to celebrate that 50th anniversary. So stay tuned to hear more about that. 
Oh, exciting. I love anniversaries. And I think uh, this year, last year, was the 50th anniversary of the um, Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement. So lots lots to you kind of follow right in the, the tail of that. So um, perfect partnership. Um, and thanks for everything you're doing for really our nation, for the Great Lakes. And I'm so glad you stuck with the Great Lakes. We need smart, capable, great leaders like you to help, you know, uh, continue to protect and preserve our beautiful Great Lakes resource. Thank you so much for joining us, Debbie. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. This wraps up another episode of North Coast Chronicles, Tales from the Great Lakes. The creation and content for North Coast Chronicles is by me, Helen Broll, and co-produced and engineered by Tyler Buckingham of the American Shoreline Podcast Network. The sea shanty for our podcast was recorded on the violin by Catherine Chambers. Send me your comments, ideas for future podcasts, or to be a sponsor to northcoastchronicles at gmail.com. Join us next time on North Coast Chronicles as we continue our Great Lakes adventure. Until then, be good to one another.